10 or 15 years ago, I spent personally a, about an entire year um, reflecting for my own sake on the virtue that we're going to see extolled by Paul in Philippians 2 today. It's humility. So I literally went from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible and found every, every scripture I could find about pride and how to kill it and humility and how to grow it um, in desperation uh, to reform my own prideful uh, heart. My journals are littered with references to this passage and this virtue. I wrote in my journal way back in 2005 that this was the central passage of my life at that time and it remains that to this day in all likelihood. So when Philippians 2 fell on my rotation to preach here at the church, um, some of the guys in the office suggested, oh, that's going to be easy, that's a softball. Turns out some softballs are harder to hit than others. And with this one, I just feel I'm horribly out of my depth in Philippians 2, if you're familiar with it. The depths of its theology of Christ are beyond my abilities to grasp. Its beauty is beyond my ability to articulate and my attempts to live it out fall desperately short. Um, but I do love this passage. I find it compelling in every way. Its beauty is enticing. This is the life I want to live. And this is the life we must live together as a church family if we were to say in any way, shape, or form that we're followers of Jesus. So today, let me invite you to look with me at one of the most beautiful, inviting, encouraging, and convicting passages in all of the New Testament. If you'd like to hear um, a more polished rendition of, of me teaching on this, in 2009 I taught this at Southeastern Seminary in their chapel, and I will post that this week. And yes, I still have the sweater vest that I was wearing in 2009 when I spoke at Southeastern. It's a great thing about a good sweater vest that never goes out of style. Um, maybe because it was never in style to begin with. But if you'll open your Bibles to Philippians 2, let's just look at Christ together and, and think about what it means for us to follow this Jesus in this way. Let me pray for us as we do. Lord Jesus, do have mercy on us. By your spirit and your word, show yourself to us in a way that compels us to follow you, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this we ask in your name. Amen. So Paul ties his thoughts in chapter 2 to the last few verses of chapter 1 that Carson taught us so wonderfully last week. If you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, Paul is showing us, he's in the midst of showing the Philippians <clears throat> and showing us how to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how to live as the beloved of God and share that message with others. And like last week, he connects our ability to live worthy to the unity of the church. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me of chapter 2. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul lists here in and a series of phrases that describe our life together in Christ as his people. Encouragement, comfort in love, sharing together in the spirit, affection, sympathy. 
He starts that with an if statement, if these things are true. And it expects a positive response. It really reads more like, since these things are true of your experience in Christ, amongst his people, and for them, especially in their relationship with Paul. Paul was essentially their founding pastor, and he loved these people deeply. Listen to the language that he's used already in the book of Philippians to describe his relationship. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. A few verses later, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And the next verse, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's been suggested that Paul probably knew this church, though he wasn't with them the whole time, for about 10 years. And he loved them deeply. And Paul says, since this has been our experience, since this has been your experience as a church, since it's been your experience as a Christ follower, um, comforted, encouraged, sharing, affection and sympathy together. But let me stop for a second and just say, is this your experience of the Christian life? Right? Is, this, is this how you would describe your Christian life? This is what it's supposed to be like. If you're not experiencing this, I wonder if you're doing it right, right? I mean, are you engaging the church the way you're called to? Are you pursuing Christ the way you're called to? This is the Christian life that's available to you. Don't settle for less. Paul says, since these things do mark the church in Philippi, in verse 2 he says, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. Nothing will bring Paul more joy than this. That the church is united. Right? And if you're a parent, you know what? It's, Paul's like a father figure to this church. If you're a parent and your kid, kids get along, that's a good day. That there's joy in the house when the kids get along. And that's how Paul feels about the church. Right? He is calling them to be united, as we'll see, in a Christ-like, humble love for one another. He's not talking about uniformity, where everybody looks alike and thinks alike and votes alike. He's talking about a church that loves alike. Loving one another as they've been loved by Jesus himself, so that their differences are swallowed up by their love for one another in Christ. But before we go on farther in, in the passage, let me just underscore for a second how important the unity of the church is to the Apostle Paul. We saw last week in verse 27 of chapter 1, it is how we live worthy of the gospel. It is how we stand together to advance the gospel. In other letters, Paul pleads with his churches to not let division creep in. This is how he writes in 1 Corinthians. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's begging them that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. Okay. A couple of verses later, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? They were lining up with different celebrity pastors in the church, essentially. 
He goes so far as to list divisiveness as a deed of the flesh that will banish you from the kingdom of God. Listen to Galatians 5. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And he lists a whole bunch of them. And at the end down there, he says, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. And then he warns them at the end of the verse that these things will keep you from the kingdom of God. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this morning, as Paul pleads with the Philippians, let me plead with you. Please do not divide the church at North Wake. I'm begging you, don't divide the church. Okay? What we have in common in Christ must swallow up our differences. It must and the great culprit lurking behind divisions in the church is all too often our pride. And Paul shows us now how to protect the unity of the very bride of Christ in Philippi and here at North Wake. The entire rest of the passage describes a humility that unites the church and is essential to living a life that's worthy of Christ. So pay special attention to these verses. They're, they're of critical importance to us. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant, some of your Bibles say more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's the nub of it right there. Death to exalting self and life to honoring and exalting others. Okay. So when I do premarital counseling for couples that are getting ready to get married, this verse is the foundation that I lay for them in how they're supposed to treat each other. I mean, you can see why, if they did this, these two verses, why it'd be the foundation for a vibrant, joyful marriage. I mean, if husbands love like this, and if wives love like this, then our counseling elder, Sam Williams, he's going to be looking for a job, right? If we just do this. Paul is absolute here. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing. It is forbidden for followers of Jesus to self-exalt. Okay. As we're about to see, when we self-promote, we've ceased to follow in Jesus' way. We are unworthy to be called Christians. So this is huge for us, right? As, as a church, as followers of Jesus. We resist exalting self and we consider others to be more significant or more important than the irrepressible me, right? Some of your Bibles render this phrase, consider others better than me, better than yourself. Um, but what you need to know, this isn't about ability. So it's not like Daniel Cresswell has to pretend that I'm a better musician so he can think I'm better than him. That's not what this is about. It's not about ability. It's about how we value one another. It's about importance. You matter more. So obviously, you could press this too far and not care for your personal legitimate needs, but that is not our problem, right? That's not what we stumble into. Our problem is that we think we matter more. 
And I think I need to look out for number one because I'm the most important. I think the church should take care of me and mine. I think I should get my way. And Paul says, no, we must honor others as more important. They are to matter more. Uh, in a fascinating little snippet, there's an author named uh, Robert Cringley. He writes about the early days of Apple when the company was young in the late 1970s. And Apple had grown beyond the point that all the employees knew each other by sight. So it was decided that, like grown-up companies, they should all have name badges. And as, the, as is the corporate way, it was deemed that these badges should be numbered. And as corporate lore decrees, the number assigned would be based on the order in which the employees had joined the company. Crinsley writes, Steve Wozniak was declared employee number one. Steve Jobs was number two, and so on. Jobs didn't want to be number two. He didn't want to be second in anything. Jobs argued that he, rather than Woz, should have the sacred number one since they were co-founders of the company and J came before W in the alphabet. And when that plan was rejected, he argued that the number zero was still unassigned and since zero came before one, Jobs would be happy to take that number. He got it. <laughs> this may be the way of Apple. It is not the way of Christ. It is not. See, every Sunday when we walk into this building, we are to be thinking, these folks matter more. When we hit those doors, we realize we're walking into a room of people who matter more than me. Every Sunday, that's how we think. And so we're on the lookout for people that we can help. Have, have, have I met you before? Are you new here? Is there a way I can serve you? Are you doing okay? Is there any way I can pray for you? This is constantly who we are. This is what it means to follow Christ here. Kelly and Shanna should be turning people away from serving in children's ministry. They should be saying, enough, stop it. We have more teachers than children. Please, don't serve anymore. We're not there yet, okay? But we can do better. We can. I'm better at this than I was in 2009. You can get better at it too. Every once in a while, somebody will actually, this doesn't happen often, but it has happened, people will accuse me of being humble. And then I'm kind of proud of that, and so we, we go back and we, we start over, you know? That's, that's just how it works. Um, hey, too much is at stake for you not to give yourself to this, okay? For this to matter to you and for you to go after it. This will be worth it. It will be worth your greatest efforts. And Paul now shows us why. This, in the next few verses, this may be one of the most beautiful sections in all of the Bible. Uh, many believe that it is an ancient hymn that Paul either wrote himself or was already pre-existent and sung in the church. And Paul simply pulls it in here and quotes, quotes it at length. Let me read it to you and just listen to the beauty of who Jesus is. He begins by saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here's the hymn. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not 
count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So do you see how Jesus loves us? Do you see how far he is willing to go in order to rescue us and procure our company? Jesus is showing us what our God is like. This is how our God loves You know, sometimes people will accuse God of being an egomaniac, that it's all about Him. It's all about Him and His glory. And I would say, nothing could be further from what our God is like. Look, look here at Jesus. He's showing us what our God is like. This is how He loves. This is one of the best portrayals of God that you could imagine. It's like 8K Ultra, right? Super vivid. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee puts it this way. He says, for in pouring himself out and humbling himself to death on the cross, Christ Jesus has revealed the character of God himself. Here is the epitome of God-likeness. The pre-existent Christ was not a grasping, selfish being, but one whose love for others founds its consummate expression in pouring himself out, in taking on the role of a slave, in humbling himself to the point of death on behalf of those so loved. And then he challenges us. Discipleship in the present calls for servanthood, self-sacrifice for the sake of others. And verse 5 makes it clear. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. This is the life he is both calling us to and gracing us to live. Look at verse 5. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or some of your Bibles will say, or which was also in Christ Jesus. And then Paul proceeds to masterfully unfold for us the willing humiliation of Jesus in three grand steps. It goes like this, from his renunciation to his incarnation to his crucifixion. Verse 6 speaks of the first of those, his renunciation. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That scholar, um, Gordon Fee, says this is one of the strongest statements of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. He says this then is what it means for Christ to be in the form of God. It means to be equal with God. And Jesus chose not to grasp his exalted place he didn't grasp he gave it says this is humility's choice to renounce privilege and to serve this bleeds over into verse 7 where we read of humility's shape from renunciation to incarnation instead of grasping it says Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So let's be clear. Jesus did not empty out his divinity. He did not stop being God when he entered our history. Rather, he poured himself out. Some of your Bibles might say he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant, by being born in that stable on that Bethlehem morn. Listen again to 
Professor Fee, he says, Christ did not empty himself of anything. The text simply says that he emptied himself. He poured himself out. This is metaphor, pure and simple. He poured himself out by taking on the form of a slave. So this is humility's shape, that of a servant or a slave, one who lays down their rights and privileges for the good of another. And Jesus modeled this for us in that upper room on the night that he was betrayed before he went to the cross. It says in John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus himself said that he entered our world not to be served, but to serve. This is humility's shape. Extreme, humble servanthood. The incarnation. Listen to the beautiful words from long ago by St. Augustine about the incarnation of Jesus. He says, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. And so Paul takes us from Christ's renunciation of privilege to his incarnation, taking on the form of a servant. And then in verse 8, the nadir of Christ's humiliation, crucifixion. It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is humility's extent. There is nothing Jesus would not endure to obey the Father he loves and rescue his beloved brothers and sisters. Okay. Paul draws attention that he would not just die in obedience to the Father, but the way he would die. He specifically draws out the means by which he would die. Death, even death on a cross. And for those of us who wear the cross as an item of jewelry or a fashion statement, we are disadvantaged here. Let me just say, no one in Philippi wore the cross as a piece of jewelry or put it up in their house as a decoration. It was a horror. And no one writes more impactfully about this than does author Fleming Rutledge in her masterful work on the crucifixion. She says, listen, listen closely to what I'm going to say. She says, as the Romans would call it, such a person was damnatio ad bestio, meaning condemned to the death of a beast. Although, she says, in our society, it would be considered unacceptable even to kill an animal in such a way. We have been reminded more than once lately that it's against the Geneva Conventions to display or humiliate a, a POW. Crucifixion, however, was purposefully designed to do just that, to display and to humiliate the purpose of pinning the victims up like insects was to invite the gratuitous abuse of the passersby. The Passion accounts reflect in part a very ancient 
ritual of humiliation. It's added to that when we remind ourselves that Christ was most likely crucified naked. The theological meaning of this, she says, is that crucifixion is an enactment of the worst that we are, an embodiment of the most sadistic and inhuman impulses that lie within us. The Son of God absorbed all that, drew it into himself. All the cruelty of the human race came to focus in him. Jesus' obedient humility knew no limits. He would descend to the lowest place imaginable for us. A public death befitting a convict nailed naked to a cross. Professor Walter Hansen writes, no greater contrast can be imagined than the contrast between the first and the last lines of the first half of this hymn. Existing in the form of God to death on a cross. The one who could have rightfully claimed the highest position in human history and justly received supreme honors, deliberately sought the lowest position and submitted himself to extreme humiliation. Now throughout this hymn, if you listen closely, you'll hear the language of choice. You'll hear it say, Jesus humbled himself. This descent to the cross was not forced upon him. He chose it in love. A songwriter named Michael Card a number of years ago penned a lyric that says it well in his song, Why? He says, why did it have to be a heavy cross he was made to bear? And why did they kneel, nail his feet and hands? His love would have held him there. So the verses of Paul's hymn have moved us from renunciation to incarnation and then at last all the way to crucifixion. But there's one more verse in this beautiful hymn and that is exaltation. And this, this is humility's reward. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So because of his extreme humility, which fueled his extreme obedience, God exalted Jesus above all others to be confessed by all, whether in gladness or sadness on that day. And again, Jesus' deity is splashing all across the page here, right? Whom else but God deserves this kind of acclaim? How could he not be God and be confessed by all humanity to be Lord? The favor of God has come upon his son because of his radical humility, not as though it's some meritorious reward, but as the pleasure of God the Father poured out on his humble, obedient son because God loves humility. He blesses humility. Peter would later write, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Proverbs makes it clear how he hates pride. Pride and arrogance 
and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, God says. So you want the favor of God on your life? You want, you want the sense that you've pleased him at the end of your day? Then follow Jesus in the way of humility. And he will give grace to you as well. One of our leaders was meeting with someone and brought up Philippians 2 as important for their discipleship and challenged them to express more humility in their home. And this is the essence of their reply. Everyone knows we're supposed to be humble like Jesus in Philippians 2, but everyone is bad at it, so I think I get a pass. Somehow I don't think Paul intended this as an option. This is essential to following Jesus. It is not optional. You cannot follow Jesus and be proud. This is the life you always wanted. There is no greater joy than this life. We can change. We can get better at it. I told you I'm far from satisfied with where I'm at, but I'm better at it than I was a decade ago, or it's definitely better at it than I was 30 years ago when I first came here to be a pastor. Here are three things I have found helpful in pursuing humility. Perhaps one of them will be most helpful for you, though I think they go together really well. First of all, in pursuit of humility, deploy prayer and the word strategically. Okay. You've seen those warning labels on commercials where the cars are driving in doing crazy things, and it says, professional driver on a closed course, do not attempt. The pursuit of humility comes with a warning label, and it says, do not try this on your own strength. Okay? Simply trying harder to be more humble is not a recipe for sustained success. You need to deploy the resources that God has given you in the Word and prayer. They are two of the great transformative agents God has given to us. So I mentioned to you that I took an entire year to read and pray and study and journal on these matters from Genesis to Revelation um, back a dozen years or so ago. I needed an entire year to reflect on how to grow humility in my soul because at that time I'd spent 50 years honing my pride to a fine art. And so I needed a long time to help, my, help me get out of that rut. You may not need a year, but you need longer than you think. Pride is not easily cast off. And when you are growing humility, you're growing a redwood, not a squash. Okay? It takes time. And our pastors are trained in these kinds of studies. They can help you do it if you would like to pursue this. Along similar lines, if there was ever a passage that was worthy of memorizing, this is it. Okay? I've memorized this passage I'm really bad at memorizing things. I'm so bad that I've memorized this passage on several occasions. Um, but you can, if I can do it, you can do it. And it's, it's worthy of that kind of reflective, intentional, prayerful engagement. So, prayer and the word are essential. Secondly, practice serving. Do tasks that you think are beneath you. Do tasks that you are not expected of you. Do tasks that are unpleasant of you. You get the idea. Volunteering to eat the leftover dessert is not a discipline of serving. Okay? 
toilets and dishes and diapers. You get the idea. You can do it at home. You can do it at work. Shock people at work and do what is outside of your job description. You can do it here. You must do it here. Okay. You must serve. I'm not talking about a time or two. I am talking about serving in these ways for months and months and maybe longer. Servanthood is like a muscle. It is strengthened by use. Okay. And it must be coupled with what I just mentioned, prayer and the word, and then this one that follows, remembering that you are greatly loved and this invitation to follow Jesus in humility is not punishment. It's an expression of that love. It is for your good. It is for your help. It is a protection from you from the deep snare of pride. It is the path of the favor of God and the way for you to have a sense of joy that you have pleased your Father. Nothing like it. This is love carved out by Jesus in a way so that you can follow him in it. Okay. A number, in Daniel Creswell's absence, a number of people have been writing a little piece called Meditation for Preparation, Med for Prep, short. It comes to your email every Friday, I believe. And the people who've been writing um, have been excellent. Mary Catherine Lasseter and Mark Lindsay and some others. Jet Wren wrote this week's It's Stellar. You might want to go back and read the ones in Philippians you've missed. They've been amazing. Um, but Jet writes, The Lord is not watching us in condemnation. He is offering you help. He is inviting us to gaze upon him and feel his love and thereby to be changed. Becoming humble and servant-like is not just a matter of gritting our teeth and struggling through it. Becoming humble and servant-like is closer than you think. Even closer is the Lord who loves you, walks beside you, and is pleased with each moment of effort that you exert. And there's the encouragement that Paul began this chapter with, right? Let's do this together. Let's be this church together. And now let's turn to the Lord's table together, where we remember together how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ that would take him from equality with God in the heavens all the way to crucifixion on the cross. And to prepare us for that, I'd like to read just a short reflection from authors Trevin Wax and Fleming Rutledge. So listen up and let this prepare your heart for the Lord's Supper together. Crucifixion was supposed to be seen by as many people as possible. Debasement resulting from public agony was a chief feature of the method along with the prolonging of agony. It was a form of advertisement, of public announcement, that this person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more like an insect than a human being. The crucified wretch was pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open for convenience or sanitation, but for maximum public exposure. Imagine the humility it took for Jesus to die for us there. Here he was, nailed to a cross by soldiers whom he created. He was raised up into the sky on beams of wood from the trees that he made. He looked into the eyes of the people who killed him, and he knew their names. 
their histories, their destinies. The creator was slain by his creation. The shepherd was slain by his sheep. Talk about obedience unto death. The creator of life submitted to death. This is ultimate humiliation. And here Paul is saying, this is God. This is what God is like. Rethink everything you ever thought about God and his power and majesty and watch that dying man nailed to a tree, gasping for breath, and see in his death the God of self-giving love. Caesar ruled by putting others on the cross. Jesus ruled by putting himself there. Let's pray as we approach the table together. Oh, Lord Jesus, in these moments, give us an, another glimpse, a next glimpse of how much you love us. That you would not grasp reputation, but you would empty yourself and become a servant like us. And even more, you would die on the cross for us, even on the cross for us. And that's what we remember now. Indeed, how long and wide and high and deep is your love for us. So help us to cherish it in a way that exalts you and honors you, King Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Lord's table at Northwake is open to anyone who is a follower of Jesus who is currently walking in fellowship with him. If you are willing to forsake your sin and come to this table to find help in your time of need from Christ, you are welcome at this table. As we come to the table today, I'd like us to use the side aisles and the center aisles to approach the tables, and we'll use these two to return to our seats. And I would ask that you might leave a little bit of space between you and those who are in front of you in line as you come to the table. Once you receive the element, if you hold it, hold them until we all have been served, and we'll partake of them all together as one, as a symbol of our unity in Christ. So the table is open. You may come and receive the elements.